to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast <laughs> with me, Mandy Bell, and Sarah Langs, who can't keep it together either. Researcher, reporter, I'm a reporter. We've been through this too many times, so I don't even need to keep saying it. But now we can't stop. We can't stay focused here because we're talking about hiccups, and I've talked about it enough that I don't have them anymore, so I can spare you all from listening to me hiccup for however long this takes. But apparently Bo Jackson just hiccups for a year, and I just learned about this, and now my mind's blown, and now we're trying to focus on And this. it's a perfect transition. We have a couple things we'll talk about today. We have Juan Soto. We'll talk about some pictures for Gilly. <laughs> I apologize. I just love Mandy's face. I'm waiting and for this transition. Realized, oh, I thought you would realize the transition. All right. No, I'm waiting. We've for got it. Juan Soto. We've got some pictures. We've got a surprise question that I've been waiting to ask Mandy for like a week now. I'm very excited for that. But we're going to start. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't know if I can do it. We're going to start with someone whose brother is named Bo. Oh my gosh, that's where this went. Oh my gosh, that's where this was going. I'm like Josh Naylor, Bo Jackson, trying to get there. Okay, that's a perfect transition. You're so right. That was teed up and I completely missed the obvious transition of Josh Naylor's brother, Bo and Bo Jackson. So here we are. We can start talking about guardians, which I don't know if we've ever done ever. So here we are. I can bring some insight to the table here. Um, Josh Naylor, and this was obviously credit to you and the Elias Sports Bureau who were digging into this over the weekend became the first player in the expansion era, which is since 1961, to hit a go-ahead home run in the eighth inning or later in three straight games. Not only did it, did he do it in the eighth inning or later in three straight games, it was the eighth inning in each situation, which just seems ridiculous that how, how is that possible? One, that they're in that scenario three straight days, just in general, that they need to have a comeback in the eighth. Just that alone seems weird that they came back in the eighth three straight days. But for it to be Josh Naylor, and not just Josh Naylor, but Josh Naylor hitting a home run each time, the weirdest thing. But it seemed like it was going to be so scripted because I'm sitting there. I'm really just writer's mindset. You just want the best story of the day. And I'm sitting there, and Tanner Bybee is pitching. He just made his fourth career start, so if you don't know his name, that's probably why. And he's pitching against Patrick Sandoval of the Angels, and they're high school teammates. It was so cool. I woke up that morning. I'm like, I hope this is a pitcher's duel. Me and Rhett, for our, our Angels writer, we can just go down the middle, and we can just write this story together about both of these guys talking about their childhood together and, like, pitching together and all this stuff. And we get into the eighth inning, and I send in our little work channel. I'm like, uh, just so everyone knows, Josh Naylor's about to hit his third consecutive go-ahead home run and throw a wrench into all of these plans. Luckily, I had written Josh Naylor that morning for my newsletter, and I think I had every bit of Josh Naylor information in there that I could have had, so we didn't need to go to the well and write him again. So I could still get my Tanner Bybee story, but... It just felt like it. That 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 was the moral of this whole rant that I don't even know why I rambled so much. 
was the fact that the writing was just sort of on the wall. And this team last year, every day, felt like, here we go again. They're about to come back. They're going to figure it out. This guy's going to do something. And this year, they haven't had, they have none of that. Like, this year it was just like, oh, the other team scored two runs. This game is over. And so for that vibe, one, to just be back in their dugout is huge for them. And you can tell that this is a completely different team just this weekend from the whole rest of the year. Their attitudes are just feel, it just feels different. But then all of a sudden you're like, yep, here it comes. Josh Naylor's about to do it again. And three straight days, three straight go-ahead homers in the eighth inning. It was wild. And I'm sure I will never see that again. It's amazing to me how he has had this kind of tendency throughout his career. This is not the first time. I mean, we have the sad about going back to the start of 2021. He has eight go-ahead homers in the eighth or later, two more than anyone else in the majors in that span. But I always think of the uh, headbutts with Tito. And there was a game, you'll remember the specifics, and I should have looked them up and didn't, but that series against the White Sox, where he, was that two years ago now? I, that was last year. That was last year. It was, was so that. much last year. No mm-hmm. sense of time. That's good. Um, where I believe he did... I mean, obviously it wasn't the same thing, but he had an extra inning home run. He had a game where he had, what, two, the ninth inning, and then the extra inning. I'll let you tell me the specifics. Wait, hold on. Let me just have this moment here because I have never been able to tell Sarah anything about anything. But but on the record, I knew he had this. This way about yes, him. Yes, So of I just want that. Just, just to be able to bring a specific. This is, wow, what a moment in my life. So Sarah, what had happened was, no, um, it, it was in Chicago. He had that game where he had eight RBIs in the eighth inning on, which was ridiculous. He had um, the, like, game-tying uh, grand slam and, like, the go-ahead three-run homer in extra innings, which was stupid in itself. And then in the eighth inning before that, he had an RBI double, I think. So he had an RBI for the double, then he had the game-tying grand slam, then the winning, deciding three-run homer in extra innings. And he, we, we knew he had a crazy side to him. He doesn't hide that. He has this, he's an animal, and we all know it. But I had never seen it. Like, it, you just thought of, it was a passionate player leading up to that. And he is. And then he had that day in Chicago, and he just unlocked some psycho mode. I don't, I don't know how to, I don't know a term for it. He became another human being, and it was insane. It was entertaining. It was a boost for this dugout. Like, it's not like it's, I'm not saying it's a negative thing in any way, shape, or form. I'm just saying I don't know how to paint this picture, and that's kind of what my job is supposed to be. But he just went crazy. He threw his dugout, I mean, his uh, helmet down the dugout tunnel, and he just started screaming at everyone and everything that he saw after, like, silently and unemotionally running the bases. And then he all of a sudden switches into this person, and he's firing himself up, firing his team up. 
And then we saw it again later in the year. He had a walk-off at Progressive Field, and everyone remembers him headbutting Tito um, when he came off of the field there, which was funny. We heard uh, the next day that his mom yelled at him and made him go apologize to Tito, which was very comical because it's, you know, you can be whoever you are in this world. You still have a mother who's going to put you into your place if you do anything that she doesn't agree with, which I thought was incredible. So, um, So he did go in and apologize to Tito the next morning. Um, but it's just, he can channel that at times. And it seems like he's so incredibly skilled at channeling that in the right moment. And I don't know how you can do that because there's times that there's luck where you're running into good hits at the right time. The Guardians have seen so many times this year already where they finally get a home run, which they never get. But it's whenever they're down for nothing and it's the seventh inning and it's a solo shot and it does nothing. So it's like now luck never seems to be on their side, but it seems like he's able to channel that into being more than luck. And it's somehow some sort of a skill that he can bring this insane passion, determination, all of these things that he has and deliver in these moments. And he's been unbelievable for them, especially last year. And now we're seeing it again, three straight days this year. And that's definitely a good sign for them who's trying to prove that last year wasn't a fluke and they're trying to be as successful, if not more this year, they're going to need him to be able to channel that. And goodness, he showed he still can. I mean, I love when there is a set that is fun and first time ever and all of that. I love it even more when it's your game. So I was very excited. I logged on a little bit after it happened, actually, because I was getting ready for Sunday baseball and just doing a bunch of things. And immediately I was like, no one has mentioned this. Let's see if it's a first of all time. And the furthest back was obviously just the expansion era, but really, really fun. And as you said, this is a team that certainly needs that boost, and you hope that that can be that moment for them. Okay, this is the one way that I know everything is all right in the world again, is that when I look at our our prep doc going into these shows, and I see that Sarah has Soto in all caps, and Sarah, the one Soto stat machine for a while there, when he, you know, gave people reasons to look these things up, it seems like it's been quiet for so long, like uncharacteristically long, painfully long. And now suddenly he's back and he's in all caps and it's time for Sarah to be back on her Soto grind. So, I mean, he's been on a rip and a tear over the last few weeks and go ahead. I know this is, this is your, this is your moment to shine now that we can get back into some Soto stats. I am so glad to see this happening. And you know what? I'm 0% surprised. Everyone was talking early in the year, mostly just negative Nancy's on Twitter. But people saying, oh, what's the big deal about? He's finished, he's not. People need to learn to be patient. Ultimately, when we look back on this year, Juan Soto will have had 26 not so great games to start the year. And then a really, really good rest of the season. So through April 26th, 
he was hitting 178, he had a 339 OBP, and a 344 slugging percentage. None of that sounds like Juan Soto. Right now, just over the course of his next math, one second, next 15 games, these are his season averages. His season averages are already up to 255, 403, and 483. Still not quite one Soto, but to have been at 178 and 339, 344, April 26th, not even a month ago, two weeks ago. And now we up there, let me explain how. So this actually goes back to the final game of their series against the Cubs. He had this 0 for 5. He actually had back-to-back hit list games uh, April 25th and 26th. I believe he had a long 0 for streak even dating to the prior game. And after that, he comes back. He's 1 for 3. He draws a walk. And he starts to look like himself. He is over his last 15 games, 382 average, which is fourth in the majors in that spam. 507 on base, which leads, and a 709 slug, <coughs> which ranks fourth. So he is a top four hitter in baseball right now. I know it's 15 games, but the guys ahead of him on those lists, Salvador Perez, who's also been on the roll, Luis Robert, and Lord Escuriel Jr. Point being, when you see a hitter like this finally look like himself, you're going to believe in it. And something we talked about last year and in the offseason about why I believe that Soto was going to continue being a future Hall of Famer had to do with how he hits the ball when he does hit it even in those sort of early goings and certainly now he is toward the top of the list in hard hit per swing percentage so that means instead of what percentage of his batted balls are hard hit it's one percentage of his swings lead to hard hit bad balls. So it gets down to that selectiveness, which we know he has. And I'm sure he, who is a very self-aware hitter, would even say that he knows what he needs to work on. The rest of the year is that ground ball rate. That was a bit of the issue. Last year at times, I mean, it was why he did the home run derby. He talked about wanting to elevate his swing, knowing that would help. Again, very self-aware, which is why he's going to continue to be fine. But certainly overall on the whole, that still needs a bit of work. But the end result is He's hitting home runs, he's getting on base, he looks like him. And I want to point out all of those stats I read off to you are coming off of an 0 for 4 day with two strikeouts. Like, he didn't have a great game on Sunday, and he's still fourth in the majors in batting average 
over the last 15 games. It's a small sample size. Super small. And I think we need to always justify and quantify all this stuff, like explain why maybe it's not the whole story. But I think the biggest takeaway with it is that he's, he's struggled for a while now. Like, it had to be frustrating last year to have a season where he's only hitting 242. And, I mean, his OPS was still 853. It's not like he was awful. Like, it's let's be real here, which was an OPS plus of 149. So if you're looking at that, league average would be 100. And so, you know, you're thinking 149 is not bad. So you're putting that into perspective. He's still Juan Soto. He's still an incredible hitter. But clearly, like you said, when he's talking about the reasons why it would be smart to go into the home run derby, to start thinking about his swing path and all these things, you know he's not right. He's not completely right because he's thinking at all these times of how he can get back to being right, how he can get better, what's going wrong. And when a player's in those types of mindsets, you know that they're not quite there. And so if this is the stepping stone to get him back to being the Juan Soto that if you look at his stats page and everything's bolded or italicized or whatever, um, seeing that he's leading in some sort of category, that's the point of where you need to get back to. And if this is that stepping stone to get him back into the headspace where he's this dominant player, he knows he's this dominant player, he's seeing the results of being a dominant player, He's the guy that everyone's tweeting about during the postseason because it's like, oh my gosh, I remember even sitting on my couch watching it like, I'm sorry, how old is this guy doing what he's doing and making this name for himself on this stage? Uh, If this is the stepping stone to get back there, then hype this as much as possible because yes, it's two weeks. But if this means we're all going to be able to enjoy the Juan Soto of elite Juan Soto, I think that's this is a, a big deal and something to certainly keep a close eye on because, man, is he fun whenever he is at his peak. He is, and it gets to a broader question about why the Padres have maybe not lived up to some of the expectations that they had surrounding them entering the year. I do think that his getting back to being himself helps that team a lot. I know Bob Melvin has talked lately about how their offense as a whole has put too much pressure on the pitching staff because on the whole they have not hit the way they were expected to and not maybe crushed the ball the way they were expected to. And as you know, covering a team that doesn't always hit for power, you need a sparkling pitching staff to be able to compete every day with that. And as Melvin said in a post-game presser recently, that's a lot of pressure. I do think the Padres still are better than they've played so far, but it is May 15th. I know our friend Mark Feinstein always talks about how he doesn't, he has heard from baseball people that they don't usually take run differential too seriously until about Memorial Day. So we're two-ish weeks away from that. And the Padres entering Monday have a minus 10 run differential. 
I wonder at what point you start to think that could they finish third behind the Diamondbacks, but I also know that A.J. Preller is not going to sit there and let anyone, least of all the team itself, decide that any season is a lost season, especially before the trade deadline. We know how aggressive he can be. He traded for Juan Soto last year when we didn't even think that was possible that a player like that could really be dealt. So it's just interesting to look at, and I do think that Soto starting to climb out of that early season funk is hopefully for the Padres very much a part of how their story goes moving forward. And I think that I am dying to find out this mystery question. And so I really need to get to the break so that we can get through this. Oh, yeah, great pitching stuff. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, I need to know what this mystery topic question is because now it's been looming in my brain for like seven days, five days, whatever it is that this has been teased for me. So now my curiosity is taking over. We'll take a quick break. We'll get to the great pitching first. I, I understand these guys, you know, need the credit. And then we'll get into the mystery topic, so stay with us. to the ballpark dimensions podcast i'm mandy that's sarah and we have a handful of pitchers that really should be getting even more credit than what they already have because it's been impressive that the not just like really incredible outings because we've seen pitchers do that and then falter in their next start or take a step back in their next start these guys are starting to string together starts and that's really what's the most impressive thing about it i couldn't believe when i saw your tweet about bryce miller because it just it blew my mind that he would one that he's been as dominant as he is because i i haven't been able to see all of it so when i saw that you tweeted that he had gone uh we had thrown at least six innings and allow three hits or fewer and not just three appearances consecutively, in his first three career appearances, jaw like on the floor, because I, I'm, I'm, trust me, I understand watching good pitching development because I, the Guardians have somehow just mastered that and they refuse to allow us to dig into it at all because they don't want any of their deep secrets out there. I get it. But it's <laughs> fascinating when people can come up and make their debut and not just survive it but like thrive and really perform on baseball's biggest stage i'm watching it with tanner bivey right now um logan allen has handled it well with cleveland like it's just really fun to be able to watch guys like this but this level to be this untouchable i i couldn't even believe that someone out there right now is doing that so bryce miller made his debut on my birthday and this well, then it sh- we should have known it would have been a great stretch. Goodness. Exactly. So he was facing off against Mason Miller on the A's, who is also a young prospect. And the two of them had dueling shutouts and 
no bids going and all of this stuff. And I believe we were preparing for either of them to throw a no-hitter <laughs> through about five innings. And I believe it was Mason Miller who ended up with the longer bid. Wait, I'm going to check myself, everyone. One moment. Is this where we put in Jeopardy music or crickets? Which one are we going with? <laughs> all right. I have this open. Um, <laughs> the first I'm here to make your life as stressful as possible, Slang, so you know this. In the bottom of the sixth against Bryce Miller, Tony Kemp had a single, and then the and the first hit against Mason Miller did not happen because he was removed with a no hitter in progress. Basically, this game they both had no hit bids through at least six innings, which is the correct way to celebrate my birthday. But the point being that. Bryce Miller and Mason Miller looked really good. Bryce Miller has continued to look really, really good. So as you mentioned, through three outings, he has allowed three hits or fewer in each of those. And these are long outings, right? He went six innings, he went six plus, and he went seven this past Saturday. So he's the third pitcher since at least 1901 to go six plus and allow three hits or fewer in each of his first three appearances, joining Eduardo Rodriguez in 2015 and Jeremy Hellicks in 2010. Okay, really cool, really impressive. Good future careers for both of them. But then I'm staring at this and it's not just the fact that he's not allowing hits. He only has one walk. He walks someone in second start. So first start, two hits, only two base runners. Second start, two hits and a walk. Third start, three hits. That's eight base runners. That is the fewest by any pitcher in his first three career appearances since 1901 with a minimum of 15 innings. So we're saying guys who actually got in the game and stayed in the game, it is still the fewest. And then I went one step further with him. So it's three straight outings with six innings and no more than three base runners. It's tied for the longest streak we have ever seen in baseball of that since 1901, and it's to start his career. So obviously, this is a point where we point out that oh my gosh. back in the day, guys weren't going six innings with three or fewer base runners because if they were pitching really well in the seventh, they came back out for the eighth and maybe they allowed one more hit and so on and so forth. So I know that it's slightly a product of current baseball, but even so, the guys he's tied with on this list, Blake Snell last year, uh, sorry, 2021, as I've said, 
no sense in time. Uh, Corbin Burns that year, Jay Garriana spanning 2015 to 16, Clayton Kershaw in 2015, and Cliff Lee in 08. That's pretty good company. And again, to start his career. And I think, okay, yes, impressive. It, I, there's literally nothing that's going to beat this because starting a career is the best thing that you could possibly throw out here for a stat. But I do think we should highlight Nathan Evaldi real quick just because I am I'm awed in the fact that he is able to stay as relevant as he stays as long as he's been around in this career now. I mean, this is his 12th season um, in the big leagues. And I know, okay, maybe not all of them have been where he's throwing the most innings in the world. But to be around for 12 years, to go from being a 21-year-old who comes up and now being in your 30s, starting to close in on your mid-30s, and you're still being able to be relevant in the headlines and posting a sub three ERA through your first eight starts. I don't understand how some pitchers are able to figure that out. And so I know you have the stat written out uh, right here that he's the first pitcher with at least three straight scoreless outings of at least eight innings pitch since Clayton Kershaw did that and, and did four straight in 2015. Uh, but like, one, just to be thrown in the same sentence as Clayton Kershaw, it shows that you're doing something right. But how, how do you do this 12 years into your career? And how can you still be that untouchable and figure out how to have that dominance and be that reliable after you've had to figure out how to adapt back to the league, figuring you out and trying to reinvent yourself as you're aging and you're not quite the same as you were when you were younger and figuring out every stage of your career, that will never not amaze me. I mean, I think a lot of it is what you said and alluded to. So much of what he's doing and how happy I am for Nathan Valdi right now comes from the journey. He was a guy who was, I mean, I remember him as a prospect. I remember him heralded as this guy who could throw really hard. He was tall, he was big, and if he could just stay healthy, he'd be a really, really good pitcher for the Dodgers and then for the Marlins. And as you alluded to, he has had some troubles. He hasn't always been that stellar pitcher. He really did seem to find that with the Red Sox over the last few years. But again, the health has been something. So I am just so happy for the person that he is here, 33 years old, 12 seasons in the bigs. And he is anchoring this pitching staff. I mean, you talk about injury history. He is the ace on the Rangers right now. Jacob Jerom is unfortunately injured. And if you look at it, even still, he is right there near Jerom. If you look at rates stats and what he's done so far this season. Again, fewer search for Jerom, but you would have thought when Durham got hurt, the Rangers' early season successes were going to fall away. 
But when Nathan Navalde says, okay, our ace is hurt, here's three straight scoreless outings, eight innings, give the bullpen, which has had some trouble to rest, that is exactly what you need. I'm really, really just happy for him. And as a baseball fan, I remember hearing his name when I was in high school and college. There's just something really, really cool about seeing it. I've returned to his home state. He's from Texas. I believe he went to the same high school as Nolan Ryan, I believe. I believe that's like the thing with Nathan Evaldi. I mean, there are a lot of things, but yeah. Two major leakers out of Alvin High School in Alvin, Texas. Nolan Ryan and Nathan Evaldi. So for him to go to the Rangers in the offseason and have this success and be able to carry the team, I'm just really, really glad for him. And again, it also becomes a practicality thing where this team needed someone to step up. John Gray has also been very good. And there are other pitchers, Andrew Heaney, Martin Perez. They've been good enough. They've certainly kept them in games. But someone needed to step up and be the ace while the ace is on the I.L. And it has been Nathan Navaldi. Can I know now? Yes. What, what, is, what is this mystery topic? So sometime last week, okay. I want to say like last Wednesday, okay. I was chatting with uh, our friend and twins reporter, Do Hyung Park, because um, Derek Law, who was a Giants prospect way back when, and is currently on the Cincinnati Reds entered the game uh, against the Mets for the Reds, and Steve Gelbs, who was doing play-by-play, referred to him as the veteran, Derek Law. Now, let me grab what year Derek Law debuted. But essentially, I know that Derek Law was in the Giants org and debuting and all of that around the time that Doe was at Stanford and then working uh, for MLB uh, out of the Bay Area. So Derek Law made his debut on April 15, 2016 with the Giants. So my point was that I heard that. You hear a player who you remember following for whatever reason referred to as a reference, and you have that moment of, how old am I? Ah. So I messaged Doe and I said, want to feel old. And Doe was, of course, a baby, so yeah, I said that lovingly, <laughs> but he is uh, not old. But anyway, and I said, I just heard Derek Love referred to as a veteran. Again, none of this has to do with CBLs. I'm putting that out there. But Doe goes, wow, that's amazing. And he goes also kind of separately. He says, here's a question I've pondered with some people. At what point does a player become a veteran? So when the twins acquired Kyle Farmer, and Doe wrote about it, he wrote him as a veteran, but he didn't really become a full-time player 
until like two years ago after going up and down. So is it games? Is it years? Because Derek Law is another example of this. Derek Law has pitched in. He's a reliever. He has pitched in. Let me get you a number. 212 career games. He pitched in a handful of games to the Giants from 2016 to 2019. Three years with 40 plus, one year with just a few. And then since then, he pitched in nine games in 2021, 17 in 22, and 19 so far this year. So there's also a big gap there where, I mean, 2020, obviously, we should probably take that off everyone's baseball reference page. But right. Shane Bieber would want that. But I think it's an amazing question. Now, as a veteran, I think it's really interesting to think about the idea of veteran and then journeyman. And when do those overlap? So we'll often call a guy a journeyman when he's barely pitched in the majors or barely played, but he's been on like 15 teams, but only been in the minors. And I think that's similar as well, but like a guy who, for instance, it's not just age because Drew Maggie is not a veteran, even though he's 30 plus, and Joey Manessas, who debuted last year over 30, is not a veteran. So what do you think? There's a gray area somewhere in the middle, and I wish we could come up with one specific number. Because, I mean, it's a mix of both. It's because my, in my mind, I was thinking, as you were saying it, obviously it's years. It's not, it's not just games experience. It's like it's years because there's guys who are the sixth man of a rotation that it just seems like they bounced around for a couple of those years going back and forth. So maybe some of those years when they still had options, they weren't getting the same number of starts as they would have if they would have been someone who was part of the actual rotation. But that experience alone, I swear, makes you age in dog years because you have to learn so much, but you're also dealing with the emotional roller coaster of going back and forth and figuring out more than anyone else on the actual team has to deal with. And so I think that sort of matures you in a way. And I know mature doesn't mean that you're suddenly more of a veteran in the sport. But I think that that can just sort of take away some of the games that you would have played, but also you're learning so much that you can then impart knowledge on someone, a younger player who might be in that same position that you once were, that you went through longer than most people had to go through. And so I think when you're reaching a point when you can be the person that younger guys are turning to, you're a veteran at that point. And so maybe there isn't a numerical way of describing it. It's more of just like the experience you've gone through. And if you can still hang around in this league after going through that, you sort of you age in dog years. I mean, it's like last year, I was thinking it had to be years, but then I thought, well, Stephen Kwan for the Guardians, by the end of the season last year, I swear to you, was somehow like a veteran on this team. He made his major league debut on opening day last year. There's no way that he's actually a veteran. But they had 17 major league debuts last season, which is unheard of. I mean, yes, two other teams had that as well. But neither of them had 
winning records. This team was doing that and winning their division and getting into the postseason, winning the first round of the postseason. Like, Quan had to learn so fast on the fly, and all these young guys came behind him, and they're all buddies with him because they just played in the minor leagues, and they're coming up, and you could start to see him by the second half of the season taking guys under his wing. And I'm like, bro, wait, hold on. You're <laughs> you're an infant in this league too, <laughs> but somehow you're doing this at a pace that you're coming off as a veteran. And Shane Bieber was someone who had to grow at a rapid pace for this rotation because he was someone who was the baby of the group in 2019 and he was having success. Um, and then 2020 happened and that was a weird year, but you had like the mainstays were really gone for this team. Corey Kluber was gone. Trevor Bauer was gone. And then Mike Clevenger and Zach Plesak were sort of suspended there in the middle in the middle of it all for breaking COVID protocols. And so they weren't really present. But like Clevenger wasn't a veteran, but he was like more experienced than Bieber. So it was left for Bieber to figure out how to help this young group. And he was thrown into the veteran thing before the number of years would line up in my head. So I think that there's just really no way to do it. I could dig into this hole for hours now, and I probably will when I'm laying in bed at like two in the morning staring at my ceiling thinking, huh, maybe there was a better way I could have answered that because this guy, I don't know if there's an exact answer. And there's just there's an example for every situation that you can think of of how someone would be a veteran when you didn't think he should have been. This is why Doe is the smartest person we both know. 100%. Because somehow he provokes, like, college-level essay thoughts out of us with baseball questions over an innocent slack about, hey, this reliever is now a veteran. But I do want you to think about it now. If you ever use it as an adjective or a noun. Yeah. And, and why um, I used it. Why story. do I think he's a veteran? Yeah. Wow. My <laughs> life has just changed in this moment, Sarah. Now I'm going to be thinking, as if I didn't overthink enough during the day, now I'm going to be overthinking my adjective choices. But it's fine. I needed something else to throw on. It's fine. Wow. What? That is a good question. Right? Yeah, I, I don't like that you like put in there on our document that it wasn't that interesting because that's wrong. Yeah. I know you weren't trying to build the hype for it. I get it, but it's super thought provoking. So on that note, before I go into another spiral, we'll take a quick break and then we can come back with some much easier topics to discuss <laughs> of our favorite moments from baseball over the past week. So we'll have more when we come back. Welcome back to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. It's Mandy and Sarah. And of course, now we have our favorite segment of the week with Alana Schreiber. She will be uh, leading us off as she usually does in her favorite moment from a week. I guess I should at least say your title. You're a wonderful producer. So go ahead and start us off with what you enjoyed from baseball over the last week. I'm going to go ahead and give the most predictable uh, answer that you've ever heard, which is that Two Fridays ago, we had Max Fried face off against Dean Kramer, and it was the 
first time that two Jewish pitchers have played against each other since 1977. My dad called it the Shabbat Showdown. It was really exciting because, like, they're not just Jewish. Like, these are two full-fledged bar mitzvah boys on the mound. It was <laughs> awesome. Of course, I saw Dean Kramer pitch during the World Baseball Classic for Team Israel. And I've been watching Max Fried pitch against the Mets for years. And every time he does, Gary Cohn just somehow works in there that he idolized Koufax as a kid and even wore his number in high school. He just likes to put that nugget in there. And if that wasn't enough... Then that same day, Matt Mervis, who's also Jewish, also played for Team Israel, made his debut on the Cubs like a few hours earlier, and he got an RBI single in his very first game. And I'm like, wow, what an amazing day for Jews in baseball. This is great. And then Harrison Bader returns to the Yankees. He's also Jewish. He was going to play for Team Israel before he got injured. But the best part was that before he did, he did this little video with the chef Marcus Samuelson. Don't know if you guys have seen this, but they go to the Bronx and they go to Lieberman's, the Jewish deli. They eat matzo ball soup while they talk about baseball. And then they made a brisket together. And it was absolutely incredible. So, you know, on the field, off the field, there's just been a lot of really great Jewish baseball content in the last couple of weeks. That is outstanding. I um, My mother was the one to send me the text about the first since 1977. Big fan of these storylines. And by the way, the video reminds me of, I don't know, I hope neither of you remember this because, I mean, you shouldn't be as ridiculous as I am, but when the Bears drafted Tariq Cohen, or when they had Tariq Cohen, there was a Bleacher Report video where he and I forget which person went around and basically did a whole Jewish food tour. Tariq Cohen is not Jewish, but his last name is Cohen. And the whole joke was like, what if you were? And it was the most normal thing. And now I have to look for the Abbader video. That's incredible. And I'm just going to say, I think Tariq Cohen reminds me of this term that I hear on the Menchwarmers podcast. Um, they call it a Mike Jacobs goy, which is someone who sounds Jewish but isn't. So good to know he's also in that club. <laughs> okay, Sarah, go ahead. All right. I'm just going to go ahead and take the most heartwarming moment of the month, the century, which was on Sunday Baseball, uh, Eduardo Perez, another great interview. This time he sat down with Lars Nupar, who played for Team Japan because his mother is Japanese and he is very much a self-professed mama's boy. And so they did an interview with him in the booth before the game, talking about a handful of things, the pepper grinder, all of these things. And then it's Mother's Day, and it's airing on Mother's Day and being taped on Mother's Day. And so there's a monitor in front of them, and Wardo says, you know, tell me about your mom. And Lars goes, oh, there she is, and there's a few different photos going through. And he starts talking about her, and then the photo montage ends, and it's his mother on Zoom right there. And he goes, wait, is this live right now? 
and he starts crying and his mother goes, he cries a lot, he's a crier, which was amazing. She thanked him for sending flowers for Mother's Day. And it was just this amazing moment of him being truly 100% surprised, which is pretty rare in this day and age with technology and how these things go, PR staffs. I mean, someone usually leaks something, nothing happened. He was surprised, he was crying, it was amazing. And then to start the broadcast, uh, the booth crew, so Carl, Eduardo, and David Combe did a little interview with Alex Cora, and then he couldn't see her, but they brought on his mother over FaceTime, and they spoke to each other. That was also a surprise. And uh, Alex has mentioned many times his father passed away when he was in his early teens, so his mother was really the entire rock of the family. And even though they couldn't see, well, she could see him, but he couldn't see her. There were multiple moments where they had the exact same smile on their face in the same moment. And it was just amazing, amazing to see. There was so much great Mother's Day stuff, it seemed like, this weekend. And obviously that just took the cake. It was so wholesome. And I know I use that word so much during this segment. But it's like, that's what this segment is. And it's my favorite thing. And so when you sent me that stuff, it was so awesome to watch. And I was so excited that they did that. Because it's so unique and different to be able to incorporate your mom into this. So that was fun. Mine's like... Also something I saw on Mother's Day, but it has nothing to do with moms. So like, I don't even know how to use that as a transition. But <laughs> on Sundays at Progressive Field, and I have said this before, and I'm sure I've used this before, and I don't even care because my heart explodes every time. Like they do the kids starting lineup. And it is my favorite thing that you could do at a baseball game ever because kids before the home team takes the field to start a game, each kid is announced as if they were playing that position at third base. So-and-so from this town is, is going out. And then the, all the mascots, like the hot dogs and slider. And on mother's day, they have sliders mom there. Um, they all form this little tunnel and they run through and they hit everyone's hands. Um, giving high fives and then they go run to their position and then the major league team comes out and they come running out to their positions and they greet the kids and I swear to you I am it's like the first time I watch it every time because I, I get so happy there's nothing like this there's no there's nothing no sport can do things like this and it just it's so cool for each of those kids to have a one-on-one -on -one moment with the player that's running to that position. Ahmed Rosario was unbelievable because I'm watching who stays out there the longest, who seems the most engaged, who's doing this. And I swear their conversation lasted like the whole warmups. It was so, there was this cute, cute little girl at shortstop waiting for him. And he was just bent over and they're just talking, like full on conversation. And you know, there's a little bit of a language barrier there. Like he's obviously comfortable in Spanish and he can get by in English, but like 
it doesn't matter. Kids don't care. And that's what makes it even better as I'm sitting there watching this. And she was so happy and excited. He had to sort of just like nudge her off the field to say, okay, well, we're about to play, so you might need to go. Um, but the way that each player takes the time to do that, they all the kids usually have a ball and the player will autograph it before they run off. I promise you there is nothing that gets me like that because what other sport can make that type of a moment in game just before the game starting? But on the field, as if you're part of the game and you're having this one-on-one moment, I will never not love those. It's just the best. I love those so much. And they do them a lot at uh, City Field. Mm-hmm. But they don't do the announcing the lineup as right? if they're part of it. That is amazing. If the uh, anyone from the Mets is listening and any team, because most teams do this like mm-hmm. at some point, Please start announcing the kids. That is adorable. What do you think those kids feel like in those moments? Like, that has to be, like, the highlight of their life. It's so sweet. I love it. I also think that they're selling to the shortstops because at the Mets games I've covered, it's always Lindor who is the one with the kid there the longest. And maybe it's those two just having particularly gregarious personalities but there's something about that but i always love when it's like a super tall player i know nolan jones is no longer with the guardians organization but someone like that or aaron judge obviously being the obvious other one and it's this tiny little person. I mean, it's amazing. The chest position is so great. They have to bend over so little to try to get on their level. It's so awesome. And yes, when Lindor was in Cleveland, he was obviously always the one staying out there the longest. He loved kids. He talked about it all the time. He would always play with Roberto Perez's son, like out on the field before the game starts. They'd play catch. And he would always say, I cannot wait to have my own kid. And now he's waiting for number two to come along. So, like, it's so great. I I love whenever uh, players embrace all of that stuff. I agree with your take on shortstops. I've always said it's not just a position, it's personality. There we go. There we go. Perfect. Now that'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or you have any suggestions for us at all, please leave us a rating and a review. Thank you, as always, for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast, and we'll see you next week.